Amen. You can have a seat. So it's the beginning of a new year, and our senior pastor, David Mcnitsky, has asked us to kind of re- take a few weeks to refocus and consider last week what it means to be a follower of Christ, a follower of the way. And so I'm thankful to Daryl for leading us through that topic and through those scripture passages. And then this week, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian community. Um, Our scripture passage, interestingly enough, is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 is what David wants us to consider. And we're looking at verses 4 through 14. This is what Jeremiah said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf, For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's seventy years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. Then when you call upon me and you come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." This is the story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week, Keith and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary by returning to the place of his birth. Lucky for me, that was a Caribbean island. (laughs) Last Sunday morning, as I sat on the hotel porch cafe, the cafe porch, The first morning, the sun was shining, but it wasn't shining too much. There was a gentle breeze. In front of me, there was a beach and turquoise water. And behind me, there was plenty of food from a really nice buffet, breakfast buffet. And at the tables around me, people were speaking different languages. Uh, There was some Portuguese and some Dutch and some Spanish And each had an upbeat tone because, hey, it's vacation, right? (laughs) So I thought, as I was sitting there last Sunday morning, I thought, oh, Acts 2, right? (laughs) This must be what it's like when the Holy Spirit wraps everything up. This is like heaven to me. This is an ideal place. I bet, I bet that you have a memory of a place like that, whether it's a beach or a mountain view, a place where it seems like everything is set right. So the problem 
for the people that are receiving Jeremiah's message is that their circumstances are exactly the opposite of the ideal. They are not sitting on a Caribbean island. Everything for the Judeans in Babylon is set wrong. Jeremiah's message is to those who were captured by Nebuchadnezzar, and they're carted off to Babylon, which is pictured behind me in front of you. And the, the Judeans then become prisoners. They, they become prisoners. They're away from their homeland. They're held captive, and they're suffering in the hands of their enemy. So this text that we read this morning, Jeremiah 29, is a text that speaks wisdom to people who are displaced. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. Spiritually speaking, what does it mean? What does it mean to call yourself faithful, to be faithful, when the circumstances are set wrong, when you're not in the right place? I'm going to guess that you know what that's like. I'm going to guess that many of us have pretty formative memories of displacement from our childhoods, that we know we can remember what it was like to either move to a new town or to a new neighborhood or to a new class when all was set right in the old place. But it's also true that those experiences, they aren't relegated to childhood, are they? They continue into our adulthood. Alexander Shia, who will be teaching here this week, has a four-gospel path that he teaches, that there are four reoccurring themes that happen in our lives as we travel the journey of life, and he uses the Gospels to illustrate those themes. He says that the Gospels speak to those themes in the order of Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke, and he says that Matthew is a primary witness to change, and then Mark is a witness to what it's like to live in suffering. And he says that most any change, any displacement, is going to bring some discomfort. And if it doesn't bring discomfort, it's going to bring suffering. And so the problem seems to be that I am a person who doesn't like discomfort. The problem seems to be that I am a person who likes comfort, who longs for comfort, I read this week that you can find over 347 million matches for the word search most comfortable. That we are always searching, we're always Googling those words most comfortable because we want the most comfortable hotel, we want the most comfortable shoes, pajamas, airline seats, please somebody help with that. We even want the most comfortable church. Rabbi Steve Leader, who lives and teaches and he leads in Los Angeles, recently wrote, Comfort teaches us nothing. We have much to learn from pain and discomfort. The challenge, he says, is not to endure pain, but to let pain change our lives for the better. He wrote a book that's titled More Beautiful Than Before. And in that book, Leader repeats a catchphrase several times that I'm drawn to. The catchphrase is this, 
Don't leave hell empty-handed. Don't leave hell empty-handed. I really like the image that pain, discomfort, hell, whatever name we give it, has a gift to give us. So I need to make sure that I pick up that gift. And I believe that it's true that every one of us, at some point in our life, at least once, if not more than once, walks through a valley of shadows. And when we walk through the valley of shadows, the challenge is more than just endurance. It's more than just to get to the other side of it. Instead, leader says, don't get out of hell empty-handed. Pick up the blessing that is there for you. There's a short TED talk by a woman named Stacy Kramer that I would recommend to you. It's one of those three-minute three minute videos, and so it would be easy to look up at some point this afternoon. Her name's Stacy Kramer, and she says in her TED talk, imagine a gift, a small gift. It's not too big, she says. It's about the size of a golf ball, and in the video you see a small blue package with a white bow, kind of like a Tiffany box, right? And, and, and she says about this gift, it will do incredible things for you. It's going to bring your family together. You'll feel loved and appreciated like never before, and you're going to reconnect with your friends that you haven't seen in years. It's going to redefine your spirituality, and your life will be given new meaning, You're going to, with this gift, expand your vocabulary, meet new people, have a healthier lifestyle. You're going to eat countless gourmet meals, and flowers are going to arrive at your doorstep by the truckload. Then she says, this gift came to me about five months ago. It is a brain tumor. And while I'm okay now, she says, I would not wish this gift on you. But I wouldn't change my experience either because it profoundly altered my life in ways that I didn't expect. And so then she ends with these words. The next time that you're faced with something that's unwanted or something that's uncertain, consider that it just might be a gift. Two years ago, I went to meet with my spiritual director for the first time and Not all spiritual directors do this, but mine is a nature photographer. And so when I go to meet with her, she puts about five or six pictures in front of me. And then she asks me at the end of our time together, which picture are you drawn to? Which one do you like? And so this was the very first time that we met together. It was two years ago. And I said, oh, that picture of that beautiful pink flower. And she said, well, I don't know you very well, but that's kind of interesting because That flower is a camellia, and that thing blooms in winter. Consider the gift. Consider the gift that is in front of you. When you find a time of discomfort or a time of pain, Jeremiah talks of false prophets in the passage that we read today. Hananiah. And Shemaiah are two of the prophets that are mentioned in the verses that surround our text. And so a false prophet is exactly what uh, the label insinuates. It's somebody that gets it all wrong. I think that we tend to think that a false prophet is ignorant 
or a false prophet just has bad beliefs, is a heretic. Because in our time, in our day and age, we value right answers and we value logic. It's interesting, though, that it's not necessarily the beliefs of the false prophets that Jeremiah goes after. It's instead their strategy. It's their strategy that he goes after, the way of life that they are encouraging the Judeans to engage in. Because the false prophets are promising a quick fix. They are telling people that things are going to get better instantly. They are basically saying to the people who are held captive in Babylon, don't worry about it. The Babylonian intrusion is going to be short-lived and everything is going to go back to normal. And so what they are saying to people appears to be good news. People probably like to hear these false prophets preach, but Jeremiah wants people to know that they're in denial. A false prophet promises immediate gratification. And this is a little unsettling to me because I'm a sucker for comfort. I want people to be happy. I want circumstances to be better. So I want to ask you this morning to consider with me some false prophets that tempt me. (laughs) These false prophets appear every time that stress makes the air thick (laughs) or that anxiety rises. And there are four of them. So there are four different flavors of false prophecy that I want you to think about, and you're probably going to find that you have a favorite. What they all have in common is that they promise immediate gratification. These false prophets promise that things will be made immediately better. So here's the first. The first false prophet I'm going to call conflict. So when stress gets thick, when anxiety rises, the temptation becomes to fight with words or with actions. So conflict sounds like this. I'm right and you're wrong. Conflict is when we set somebody else straight. I saw it, I saw it one time when I was on my vacation. I was sitting, I was sitting in a restaurant. We happened to be sitting by a hostess stand. And there was another customer that came in while we were sitting at the table enjoying our dinner. And and he came in and he apparently wasn't getting what he wanted or what he needed from the hostess. And so his, his voice was raised. He raised his voice and he said to the hostess, you don't treat me like that. Don't you walk off from me when I'm talking to you. I want to speak to your manager immediately. So conflict promises that if you just set somebody straight, that things will instantly get better. And maybe it appears that way. It appeared that way as I sat in the restaurant because the guy got a table pretty quickly. Uh, But conflict leaves a trail of wounded. Um, I couldn't stand it. So when Keith and I got ready to leave the restaurant, I went over to talk to the hostess. It was about half an hour later, and so I wasn't sure if she would even know what I was talking about. But I said to her, I heard what that man said to you, and it wasn't right. And she said really quickly in response to me, she said, I was just talking to myself about that right now. She couldn't let it go. 
That's what happens with conflict. It promises immediate gratification, but it doesn't really deliver. The next false prophet is blame. So when things go wrong, when you're carted off to Babylon and you're not comfortable anymore, look for someone or some group that you can blame. Uh, This would sound something like, the Babylonians did this to you. What if Jeremiah wrote this? The Babylonians did this to you. It's all their fault. They're no good. Well, Jeremiah didn't write that at all. (laughs) There's no blame there. Okay, the next false prophet I'm going to call distance. And this is the flavor that I prefer. I have a fondness for distancing. So the false prophet of distance says if you can just put some space between you and what is seems to be causing you some anxiety, what seems to be causing you some stress, if you can just put some distance there, then everything will change. Everything will be okay. You probably know that I have had a challenging couple of years at work. And so I have this daydream that Keith thinks is really funny. He thinks it's funny, I believe, because it's probably not a good fit, but I'm going to tell you about it. It involves Keith and I moving to the hill country, getting a piece of land in the hill country, an isolated piece of land, and then driving, me driving to work into the big town of Kerrville, not at a church, but at Lowe's. <laughs> I imagine that I would like to work in the gardening department of Lowe's, <laughs> where I could rearrange plants and flowers. Because it's kind of like what I already do, right? I arrange words. But what I tell Keith, is that I've never heard of anyone getting upset by the arrangement of flowers and plants and never going back to Lowe's. (laughs) It just doesn't happen that way. (laughs) But I think Keith knows that it's not a good fit because of the time clock and the uniform. Those things wouldn't work very well for me. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with a daydream. But I want you to know that if you see me packing my boxes... You might want to tell me to slow down. Slow down a bit and follow the advice of Jeremiah that we're going to get to in just a few minutes. And then the fourth prophet is this. The fourth false prophet is to get someone else involved. So if you can get someone else involved in what's causing the anxiety or what's causing you stress, then the promise is that the stress will go away. So if you're the Judeans, then you're looking for a savior country, right? And and if you're the Judeans and you're going to get somebody else involved, then you might get the Persians involved. And you might tell the Persians about how badly you're being treated by the Babylonians and get them to come in and set things straight. So there are times when getting somebody else involved is a healthy, helpful move. Sometimes we do that in our marriages with a counselor or a spiritually mature friend. If the Persians were to say to the Judeans, well, here are some ways that you can deal with the Babylonians, go back and deal with it, well, then that would be a good move, right? Yeah. We do these four things or we listen to these four false prophets because we love comfort and we love immediate gratification and we want to do something. But the defining characteristic of a false prophet is just that it makes promises that it can't keep. So 
conflict and distancing and blaming and getting another person involved make a promise that they can't keep. They, they make this promise to get rid of the stress and get rid of the pain. The good news of Jeremiah 29 is that this passage gives us tasks to do. It has things in it that we can put our hands around, things that we can do with our own time and with our own life. It tells us something that we can do that will help. And the first thing that this passage tells us to do is in in verse 5. And so in in verse 5 and verse 6, these words appear. Build and live and plant. And then in verse 6, the word multiply. So the very first command that's given in Torah in the creation story is, in fact, this command to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply. That's the command that shows up here in exile. And that's intriguing and interesting to me because it's like, oh, this place of captivity, is this the new Garden of Eden? Is this the place, uh, the place of prosperity? I suppose that it shouldn't really be too surprising since this is exactly what happens in Exodus. It's going on in the very beginning of Exodus. Pharaoh says that the Israelites are a problem because there are too many of them, right? But the more that they are oppressed, Exodus tells us, the more that they multiply. So the instruction in Jeremiah is is simply settle in. Settle in to this place of captivity, to this place that is uncomfortable, and make it your home. Don't run away. Don't fight. Don't blame. Don't separate yourself. But let what is difficult become beautiful. The story is told that the violinist, Isaac Perlman, was about to begin a concerto at Carnegie Hall. And just as the bow touched the strings, one of the strings popped, it snapped, But what Perlman did was interesting. He went ahead with the piece. He played the entire piece that he was set to play, but he changed the fingering, and he didn't miss a beat. And so at the conclusion of the performance, the audience all stood, and they applauded for a long time because they saw what he had done. They heard what he had done. In response... Perlman, who was stricken with polio at a young age, and so he now walks with with braces and crutches, simply said to the audience this, it's my job to make music with what remains. Jeremiah 29 gives us the same instruction. Jeremiah 29 tells us to show up, to show up and let your life Let yourself be known in the midst of difficulties. And then the second piece of advice that Jeremiah gives us is to pray. Claire and I, over the holidays, have been watching The Crown, the new season of The Crown. And so there's this episode where Queen Elizabeth is visited by Billy Graham. And she asks Billy Graham about the topic of forgiveness because it's been revealed that her uncle had close ties to the Nazis and to Hitler. And so Graham's response in The Crown is to say to Queen Elizabeth, forgive, always forgive, and when you can't forgive, you pray. 
I don't know if Billy Graham really said that to Queen Elizabeth, but it's good instruction. I can imagine that he would say that. And I can imagine that that's what Jeremiah is saying to us as well. Jeremiah says, pray and seek God's will with all your heart. So the assurance is found in verses 12 and 13. The assurance is that we find God when we seek God. No matter where we are, we will find God. God is not hiding. God is not absent. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. There's another verse in this passage that talks about prayer. It's verse 7. But verse 7 is a little prickly to me. Verse 7 says this. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so the instruction is pray for Babylon. Prioritize their welfare. And the Hebrew word that's translated here into welfare is a Hebrew word that you know. It's a familiar Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. Most often, we translate shalom into peace. So seek your enemy's peace. Seek your enemy's well-being. Seek things to be set right for your enemies. And when things are set right for your enemies, they will be set right for you. Jesus said to his followers, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That may be startling to you and to me, but it wouldn't be startling to Jeremiah. Jeremiah understood that truth. Doesn't it make for an interesting setting for that familiar life verse? I think I wrote it in my confirmation Bible. Jeremiah 29:11 For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for good and not for harm to give you a future with hope 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 is found in the gift of exile and I think in the hard work of loving our enemies Faithful exile happens first by just acknowledging that you are in exile. I, I'm amazed at how much I just want to be part, especially as a white male, uh, that I get to be part of dominant culture, and I therefore don't want to think of myself as a person in exile. And 